something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers. To hear their stories... What inspires their creations? What decisions changed their careers? What relationships influenced their work? In 1961, Hurricane Carla was threatening the Texas coast. A young reporter named Dan Rather used radar technology on the air for the very first time to show viewers the size of the storm. CBS network executives took note and offered Rather a job as a correspondent. CBS would become Rather's home for the next four decades. Rather built a reputation for hard-nosed, in-depth reporting. This reputation was called into question in 2004 after his 60 Minutes report about President George W. Bush's military service. CBS conducted an exhaustive investigation on the veracity of Rather's piece. Rather apologized and eventually stepped down. Truth a film depicting the lead-up to and chaos surrounding that segment on 60 Minutes is in theaters now. It stars Robert Redford as my guest today, Dan Rather. This conversation was recorded live as part of the Hamptons International Film Festival a couple of weeks ago. As Dan Rather told me, his own military career started off with a lie that he was fit for service. I'm a child of the Depression years in World War II. And when the Korean War came, um, I know this sounds strange in today's environment and more than 50 years later, but my country was at war and I wanted to fight. I was 4F because I'd had rheumatic fever when I was a child, which was a so-called disqualifying disease. Uh, I'm not proud of it, but um, when it came down to, uh, with the Marines, I just, when I told them I didn't have any disqualifying diseases. But I have one of the shortest and least distinguished records in the whole history of the United States Marine, <laughs> Marine Corps because they eventually found out. And so I was in the Marines for a short time. I didn't see combat. I saw nothing but Southern California. But I've always been glad uh, for the time I was in. I think I learned, Alec, more perhaps in the short time I was in the Marines than any other such period in my life. That one of the For example. That, well, uh, one of the things that the Marines teach you is you can do a whole lot more than you think you can do. But at any rate, suffice to say uh, that I wasn't in for very long, didn't do very much when I was in there. The most I can say is I volunteered to go. But did, did a affinity for fighting men and now currently fighting men and women, did that influence your career when you were in Vietnam? Is that what you wanted? Is that what you, did you yes. asked for that duty? Yes. That, that and the recognition and, I've made a lot of mistakes over my career, most of which were fairly obvious, and I have the scars to show it. But uh, when the Vietnam War started, 
Uh, one, I've I recognized that it could become one of the defining stories of, of my time. And if you're a journalist, you know, your prayer every day is, God, give me the big story. And since we're all greedy right behind that, your prayer is, and oh, by the way, God, if you give me the big story, please let me be at or near my best item. But yes, my going to Vietnam was partly based on my short, undistinguished time in the Marines. Uh, I was remarkably unprepared to go to Vietnam. And I will say that to this day, and let's face it, I've been really lucky and blessed by being on a lot of big stories, uh, that the honor, and I use that word measurably, the honor of covering American men and women uh, in combat in that green jungle hell uh, was one that I shall never forget. Over what period of time did you visit Vietnam? Well, it wasn't a visit. Uh, I was there for uh, the better part of a year, late 1965. Assigned there. Yes, assigned there and stayed there, better part of a year, late 1965 to late 1966. I went back another three times, maybe four times after that, but never for that long. And when you were there to be credentialed and to get the permission to go there by the military, I'm assuming it was a lot different then than it is now. Well, a great deal different. The biggest difference in covering combat correspondence today as compared to the Vietnam era. In Vietnam, we were basically in the hitchhiking business. If you were a credential correspondent, you could go any place you wanted to go if you could get there, and the military would accommodate you. So we you look for a helicopter or a convoy going where you wanted to go, and you could go anywhere. And as a consequence, correspondents, uh, not just myself, but correspondents in general, particularly television correspondents, because you have to get the pictures, that we saw the war in every area of, of, of South Vietnam, from the DMZ all the way down to the Delta, which was rare even for people in the military. Frequently they were in one section. They'd be in the highlands, but they didn't see the delta. But uh, that's all changed now, that when you cover American men and women in combat today, it's, it's all very tightly controlled. Right, right. That, Some people say it's tightly controlled because of you. Well... <laughs> Some people say that you were unearthing too much of the facts of what were going on in Vietnam. Well, I think that's a bit much. But I do think that the the military, uh, speaking in general, felt that they learned out of Vietnam that if you let correspondents and news organizations go anywhere, anytime, any place, then they control the narrative, that you do not control the narrative. And the military, regardless of whose military it is, they're always eager to control the narrative. Now, we can spend the rest of the afternoon talking about it, but I'll make one point. That doesn't begin with the military. That begins with the White House and the Defense Department. They want to control the narrative. Therefore, they have the military make the rules, saying, don't let these reporters go everywhere they want to go and do whatever they want to do. Uh, They have a system called embedding, which is to say, you're assigned to a certain unit or a certain area, and you go... You have an escort. But an escort. Uh, there are some exceptions to that, but, but very few. But that's the biggest change between today and Who was Vietnam. The, the, during the period of time when you were in Vietnam, you were stationed in Saigon for that year. That was what year? That was uh, 65 and 66. So, so this was McNamara and Johnson? That's correct. Right. But they always felt they had made a mistake by allowing the press to do that. But footnote, bottom of the page, when the U.S. military did its own analysis of what happened in Vietnam and what went wrong, uh, they addressed the question of, quote, did the press lose the war, unquote. And this is the military's own analysis, uh, written in the mid, uh, late 1970s, early 1980s, I think. But anyway, they concluded it was not the press uh, that lost the war. It was a lack of strategy and a lack of proper strategy and transparency with the American people. And the lack of transparency with the American people led to a diminution in support for the war. You were assigned as the White House correspondent when? I first came to the White House in uh, January of 1964. This was just after the Kennedy assassination. As you know, I was in Dallas for the Kennedy assassination. And when President Johnson uh, ascended to the presidency, I came. I covered the White House in 1964. Then I went overseas, including the time of Vietnam. And I came back in uh, very late 1966 and was there uh, until roughly 1976. 
Okay. So you were, you were covering the White House that period of time. Yes. So there's, how shall we say, there's, uh, they changed a lot more than the drapery at the White House in 1968. And what was that like for you to, to cover the new administration? Well, you know, when 1968 came, the country was in such turmoil. I'm just, we don't need to review the whole thing, but Robert Kennedy had been assassinated. Dr. Martin Luther King had been assassinated. There were race riots in the country. Nixon rose from the dead politically. So when President Nixon was elected in 1968, I, I had met him and had covered him, but only briefly. And I frankly thought at the time, well, you know, I'm independent politically, but this may be good for the country. Uh, that we've had eight years of, of a democratic administration. Things are not all that good, so here's a new breath of air. But I quickly learned that the, the Nixon people, including President Nixon, they had such a deep and abiding hatred, and I use that word measuredly for the press, uh, that, for example, shortly after they came on, a man named H.R. Bob Haldeman, he later became a figure in the Watergate things, uh, I met him, he came in and he, he no sooner said, Danny, he said, we know who you are and what you are. I was saying to myself, well, that's more than I know about myself. <laughs> Tell me what you know. <laughs> so I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, you're a diet in the wool. This is a paraphrase, but a pretty close paraphrase. You're a diet in the wool, liberal, borderline socialist, Lyndon Johnson Democrat, which astonished me to hear him say it, but it was revelatory and then it, it revealed to me for the first time, we have a problem here. And of course, the, the Nixon presidency, um, it got off to a reasonably good start. If you remember, he promised that he had a plan to, to end the war, uh, when in fact he had a plan to expand the war. But things quickly went uh, from bad to worse, not just with myself, but with the press corps in general, both print and uh, electronic, uh, because they had this this deep and abiding hostility, uh, at least borderlanding on hatred toward the press. Now, when, when you're there, I mean, this is my opinion. You uh, are someone who is viewed by conservative forces in the country as being liberally biased. They always tried to tar you with that way. You, saw, you seek the truth about Nixon's activities. You seek the truth about Iran-Contra. And you're always being labeled as a liberal as being liberally biased, because you really wanted them to actually answer your questions. Do you see it that way? I do. And beyond that, I was always proud of the fact that I was part of CBS News history and tradition and the mission of CBS News, which was to take on the tough things, to pull no punches, play no favorites. And the two parts, uh, I'd like to respond to this business of, you know, he's some liberal, politically biased person. Number one, I grew up in Texas, and I'm not playing humble beginnings, but uh, my father was a dish digger, my mother was a waitress. I went to nothing but public schools, including Sam Houston State Teachers College, small uh, public school, product of Texas, product of Texas public schools, volunteered, went into the Marine Corps. What uh, am I outlining here? This is hardly the background of someone who's going to turn out to be some elite Eastern liberal. I was always amazed at the number of people who said, well, you're just another one of those Ivy League uh, elite liberal people. Well, Sam Houston State Teachers College, which is now Sam Houston State University. Well, that's not in the Ivy League, Sam Houston State Teachers College. Well, uh, I love the place, but it has about as much Ivy on it as your average Taco Bell or McDonald's. (laughs) (laughs) So that's number one. Then number two, that CBS News Oh, was, was a leader in taking on the controversial issues, asking the tough questions, going all the way back to Edward R. Murrow and the McCarthy era. CBS News was a leader in covering the early part of the civil rights movement. I was the point person on that. Uh, it was a leader in coverage of the Vietnam War. It was a leader, CBS News, not just myself, but was a leader in covering that widespread criminal conspiracy, which is known by the shorthand of Watergate. So you take all that history. Now, when people don't like the way you report, what they seek to do is denigrate you. And one way they do that is hang a sign around you. Liberal or socialist or left. I know the signs they hang around you. Uh, I was going to say, I think you'd know them pretty well. (laughs) Some people will say, I mean, in my lifetime, 
some people will look back uh, and reassess uh, uh, these periods in history, and they'll talk about a lot of the good things that Nixon did. And I'm wondering, do you reassess him now? Do you think that there was some good things that he did? And Well, unquestionably, he did some good things. Right. Uh, and he accomplished some good things during his presidency. After all... Where did he go wrong? Uh, that's a good question for psychologists, but I do want to answer the question. I think where he went wrong, for whatever reason, and I have no reason to know this, with President Nixon, he came to believe that it wasn't enough to defeat his political enemies, that he had to destroy them. And that's a, there's a big difference between saying, listen, we're going to fight like hell during the election, but once the election's over, then we'll shake hands and, and try to do some good things for the country. And I think where he went wrong was a long time before he came to the presidency, when he had this idea that, listen, it isn't enough to defeat my opponents, I have to destroy. It's better. And, and that permeated his administration. Now, as for the reassessing of, Pre- of President Nixon, There's been a a widespread and well-financed effort to rehabilitate the legacy of Richard Nixon. I think that's what you're referring to. And they make some valid points. However, I don't think that history, if it mentions Richard Nixon 100 years or 500 years from now, the inescapable fact is that he, as president, led this widespread criminal conspiracy, keep in mind more than 40 people, were indicted, many of them were convicted of felonies, and the president himself was forced to resign after being called by a grand jury an unindicted co-conspiracy. Now, when you sit there in your job and you've seen the president killed and you see, and again, when you say that you don't need to rehash the ramp up to the 68 uh, uh, election, I think it is important for people to understand in that context how seminal 68 was with RFK and, and MLK dying that spring. The Democratic Convention is a fiasco. You're seeing the Democratic Party unraveling before your eyes. Nixon, who you, you can't put a finer point on this, that Nixon was someone who, he was dead. I mean, he was dead. He comes back and wins the presidency of the United States. I mean, 68 is just this, is, is this amazing year. And uh, but when you when you travel down and you get to seventy three, were even you stunned that he he had won a landslide re-election, one of the greatest landslides in American history, in nineteen seventy two. And a year later, he resigned. He was out. Did that even stun you that that happened? Well, it did. And I was slow. Uh, you know, reporters get paid to be skeptical, never cynical, but skeptical. And when the First, first faint edges of what we came to know as Watergate began to emerge, I was skeptical that it would reach the Oval Office itself, that you never met anybody who had more respect for the office of the presidency of the United States than I do. Every day when I walk through the White House gates to go to work as a White House correspondent, I know it may sound kind of corny and sophomoric, but I really um, sort of sucked it up and said to myself, you know, this counts. This was important. Yeah, I hear you. And so I didn't believe that whatever crimes had been committed, even if it became apparent that crimes had been committed, it was very difficult for me to accept that the president himself would be involved in any way. However, as time went along, facts began to first whisper, then they began to speak in full voice, and then the facts began to shout that it isn't just lower-level campaign operatives. It isn't just lower-level members of the administration that this probably goes in, into the Oval Office itself. And I, I felt like hell about it. And for a long time, I fought it and said, Dan, you know, look, it's almost impossible to believe that a president would be involved in this. But as I say, the facts finally got overwhelming where it was undeniable. I do want to go back to, uh, uh, you said, well, in 1973, he had just come off a smashing, one of the most decisive victories in the history of the presidency. Crushed McGovern. I want to, absolutely crushed McGovern. But I want to come back to that point because that drove home the point. And I think this is what got him in the most trouble. They knew they were going to win. They knew they were going to win big. But that wasn't good enough. They had to destroy. Not, not just beat McGovern, but they sought to destroy McGovern, destroy the Democratic Eagleton. Party. Eagleton. And so it was a classic case of overreach. 
Now, you, you stay in the White House till 76, so you're there through the impeachment. You're there through Ford's brief tenure. Uh, and then Ford loses, of course, to Carter. And then you leave. Did you leave at your own choice? Did you feel like you were done and you wanted to move on? Or what, what happened? No, I didn't, I didn't cover all of the very short uh, Ford period. I covered the very early stages of the Ford administration. Uh, that CBS News uh, chose to move me from the White House to New York um, not long after President Nixon had resigned. Now, I thought at the time, and I'd be less than honest if I didn't say I still believe, uh, that they moved me because I'd become um, controversial, quote-unquote. Now, uh, in fairness, uh, Richard S. Salant, who was the president of CBS News at the time, and uh, probably the best president of any news division in history, he told me, no, Dan, that's not the reason. You're wrong about that. We're moving you because we think it's good for your career. Uh, but as I say, I didn't believe it then, and I don't believe it now. And you're there in New York doing what before they tap you on the shoulder to succeed Cronkite? You succeed Cronkite what year? I succeeded Walter Cronkite, and I appreciate you using the word succeed. Nobody replaces a legend like Cronkite. I succeeded right. Walter Cronkite in March of 1981. I was named... So it's about a five-ish year period. Yes. yes. When I moved from the White House, having been there for a total of 10 years... They moved me to New York and head of the documentary unit, CBS Reports, which was the flagship documentary unit. I was there for a short while uh, before they came and said, we're moving 60 minutes to 7 o'clock on Sunday, and we need a third correspondent. They had two correspondents, Mike Wallace uh, and Morley Safer at the time. And so I moved to 60 minutes in very early 1976, late 75. And you were there how long? I worked 60 Minutes for the better part of seven years. I took the anchor chair in 1981. And when you, when you do that job, when you become the anchor, is there a period of time where they come to you and they tell you, get ready, and they start to groom you, and you know what's coming months in advance? No. Or do you go home on a Friday and you come in Monday and you're the anchor? How does it work? I wish that had been the case because I might have been better uh, at it had that been the case. But look... I was a line correspondent. I loved being a field correspondent. I was a line correspondent for almost 20 years. And uh, nobody said to me, we're preparing you to be the Walter Cronkite successor. And quite frankly, until very late in the game, I didn't really consider it. Uh, You know, thought across my mind, that'd be nice, pays well, and get your name in the paper. But it, it wasn't something that I thought was in my future. What do you miss about that job? I miss the people. When you work closely every day with people, remember the evening news is five days a week, uh, every night. When I left CBS News and left the anchor chair, I thought I would miss it more than it turned out was the case. I miss every day working with the people. I work with tremendous people, great professionals, and that camaraderie of the newsroom and missing the people, that's still with me. Dan Rather misses his colleagues at CBS, but he tries not to miss a big story. At 83, Rather regularly reads six newspapers a day and still hosts his own show, The Big Interview, on Access TV. Explore the Here's the Thing archives. You'll find my conversation with Dick Cavett, another person comfortable with asking tough questions. He admits there are some words you'll never hear him say. I swore to God recently that I would never say the word awesome in my life. Sure. And if we could only make that true of everyone in the world, that would be swell. It can go along with iconic and um, closure and like, of course, and a few others. Amazing. We all are saying amazing all the time. Now, I got five amazings in watching morning television for about... 40 minutes the other day. Amazing guest, amazing guest. We have it's just an amazing script. It's just amazing. I was amazed by it. Your career amazes me. Yeah. Take a listen at here's the thing.org. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but. Same old. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught, a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, the new film Truth, starring Robert Redford as Dan Rather, and Kate Blanchett as his producer Mary Mapes explores the most controversial point in Rather's long career. The movie chronicles the before and after of his now infamous 60 Minutes report casting President George W. Bush's military record in a negative light. The documents at the heart of Rather's allegations were never authenticated. I'm not perfect. I've made a lot of mistakes. But what I've tried to do, other people will have to judge how well or how poorly I did it, I've tried to be a pull no punches, play no favorites, lifetime reporter who's loyal to the people he works with, supports the people he works with. And Bob Redford in his film captured that essence to a degree I didn't think was possible. And my gratitude runs really deep to him for doing that. Well, for those of you who've seen the film, there is a shot at the end of this film. I mean, you can't get more licked head to toe in a movie than they lick you head to toe in this movie with that slow motion shot of Redford beaming. I mean, it's almost like you're, you have, you, you, the only thing missing is they put Christmas lights on you. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's so loving and respectful at the end. But, um, but the, uh, 
So Mapes was somebody you picked her, you chose her to work with you? Yes, found her? and she chose me. That Mary Mapes, whose name, obviously, because she was a producer, not an on-air person, her name before this happened was not that well known. But Mary Mapes was by, not just by majority opinion, by consensus almost unanimously, one of the great television investigative news reporters, producers of, of her time. Uh, she, not alone, but as a team operation, we broke the Opera Grave story. She was a story hunter, a story breaker, great storyteller in the sense no television together. So, yes, uh, I had worked with her before, and to answer your question, I picked her, but she also picked me. Mary didn't want to work with everybody. Uh, that she was good enough and had a good enough reputation that she pretty much chose. If you came to her and said, work with X, and she didn't want to work with X, she'd just say, thank you very much. And because of a record, she could make that stick. We're going to take some questions, but um, uh, in the film... A lot of veteran people lose their job. Mapes, of course, uh, and everyone who knows her story knows she never works again in, 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 in the news industry. Um, you yourself are told, asked, suggested, you know, whatever you want to call it, to resign from your job. And yet there are people today who uh, I think have done certainly, uh, I'm not going to say guilty, but there are people today who are in broadcast news who have uh, been associated with things that are as bad, if not far worse, in terms of fostering doubts about their common sense uh, or even journalistic integrity, who have held on to their jobs. Uh, what do you think's changed in terms of television news that that happened? I don't have the answer to that question. I will say that with our story, Look, we made some mistakes. And if we had it to do over again, would I do some things differently? Of course. But journalism is not a precise science. I did at the time what I thought was journalistically and ethically the thing to do. And this is the salient point. Our story was, was true. You can argue, and this is a successful attack was launched on us, they couldn't attack the facts they couldn't attack the truth of the story. So they attacked the process by which we arrived at the truth. Was the process flawed? Yes, it was flawed. Was it flawed more than it should have been? Yes. Am I responsible for some of that? Yes. Am I, you may want to say I'm responsible for all of it, but this is the point. The story was true. It was true then, it's true now. The process was flawed. That's a different thing than a story is proven to be wrong, that they did, you don't get to the truth. Now, as to why we suffered as we did, and perhaps I should use another verb rather than suffered, but nonetheless, uh, whereas other people who do stories that are untrue uh, don't suffer the same fate, I don't have the full answer. I will say this, that Viacom was at a particular point where they, when this story broke, Preceding it, preceding it, during it, and afterward. They were in negotiations. Their lobbyists, their lobbyists were trying to get all kinds of things passed in Washington, put into effect in Washington, that would result in tremendous profits for Viacom. Now, one of the things I hope people take away from this film, because it's so important, is the point that what has changed in journalism is the involvement with large corporate power being, excuse my phrase if you must, being in bed with big government in Washington, whether that government's in the hands of Republicans or Democrats at any given time. Now, having said earlier in our discussion, there was a time when there was a firewall between the corporation, but what was revealed in this case was when the White House and powers in the Republican Party began to scream about the story. They said, you know, Rather and his crowd have made some mistakes and started demanding uh, that we retract the story, which, by the way, the story was never retracted. We apologized for the documents, but didn't retract the story. But at any rate, the amount of, of influence that the lobbyists had with the corporation, which in turn influenced the news division, 
is really stunning. And that has changed. And we talk about the corporatization and politicalization of news today. See, what this film Truth is about at base, it's less about me or Mary Mapes or even former President George W. Bush. What is about it at base is what's happened to the news, why it's happened, how it's happened, and why you should care. In, before we take a question, you know, in my lifetime, what I've seen, this is an opinion and an assessment. You know, our country is this machine that, that where democracy and capitalism interact. And, and, as, and in my lifetime, what we've seen is uh, we we're throwing out the democracy in order to accommodate capitalism and maintain standard of living and our political and military power around the world. And, but what I want to ask you is when you go through your career and you think about Vietnam and then Watergate and then Iran-Contra. Now, I have my own answer to this question, but I want to hear yours. Iran-Contra and then... Abu Ghraib, and then 9-11 and our response to 9-11 and what we've done and not done over in the Middle East, which one in your lifetime has made you more worried for the country? What a good question. Maybe because it's uh, so recent, but I'd say 9-11. Don't misunderstand me. I was obviously far younger. When I covered the early part of the civil rights movement and Dr. Martin Luther King. That was my daily week-in, week-out job. That changed me as a person and as a pro in, in really fundamental ways. That's been a long time ago. And the reason I say with 9-11, I think by any objective standard, the decision to go into Iraq, which flowed out of what happened with 9-11, the decision to go into Iraq was a... a a strategic blunder of historic proportions, which continues to resonate, <laughs> which continues to resonate to this day. So, in answer to your question, which one of those stories were, causes me to worry the most about the country? But I want to emphasize that I'm an optimist by experience and by nature, and we'll get through this period. And I do think. It's almost a cliche to say so, but it's just cliche only because I really believe it. That I think the best days of the country can be and may very well be ahead of us. But this is a very difficult time because we as a people, as a society, uh, through our, our government, have made some, some very serious mistakes over the last decade and a half plus. Um, we're going to take some, are we going to go around with some mics? In this section here, got a question? Give us your question. Shout it out. Uh, Mr. Rather, do you think the reason why you and your team got in such hot water for exposing George W. Bush's less than honorable service record with the Air National Guard was because the Bush family used their political power to prevent this from being exposed? And before I uh, give over the mic, I just want to point out that President Richard, once, President Richard Nixon once said, I would have made a very good pope. Well, the two main, uh, as to the first part of that, uh, that emphasizing the film truth isn't all about who did what to whom, who said what to whom, what mistakes were made. But insofar as it is about that, the two most important things are the facts. Everybody is intended, uh, entitled to their own opinion, but they're not entitled to their own facts. Fact one, it's a fact that uh, a younger George W. Bush, his father used his political influence to get the younger uh, Bush into the uh, so-called champagne unit of the Air National Guard as a way of ensuring I that he wouldn't that have to go to Vietnam. The champagne unit. <laughs> <laughs> but that's fact one. Fact two, that after he got in this special unit of the Air National Guard, he did at least reasonably well, perhaps quite well, as a pilot for a while. But then he disappeared for a year. Nobody disappears from the U.S. military for a year without reporting. Now, those two things are, are, are facts. And by exposing those facts, digging down, getting those facts, 
which are facts, whatever you think of the documents, plus minus or don't know, those, those are the things that got us in trouble. Where the, those who found the facts inconvenient, to say the least, for ideological, political, or some other reason, they couldn't attack us on the facts. They attacked us on the process by which we arrived at the truth. And they succeeded in those attacks. They're right there with the hand up. Thank you. Uh, Dan, I wanted to ask you a question about looking into the future a little bit. And with the network news ratings dropping every day, with the audience getting older, um, and with the advent of immediate social media news where you know, I could use this thing in my hand to get all the news, and uh, I don't need to wait till 5.30 to find out what happened that day because it's old news then. What do you see as the future of where you came from and where it's going to go? Well, I'm going to try to answer the question, but when we talk about the future, I learned a long time ago that he who lives by the crystal ball learns to eat a lot of broken glass. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I've eaten more than my share. But the question is, Goodwin, naturally, because I have a passion for, for reporting and journalism, I think a lot about it. This much we know that the Internet, if it isn't already, I think the Internet in general already is the dominant place where most people get most of their news first. Now, I've lived long enough to live through the print era, the radio era, the television era. And moving forward, the Internet will become, if it isn't already dominant, it will be dominant and be completely dominant. But that doesn't mean that television news, as pretty much as we know it, is going to completely disappear, disappear any more than radio news disappeared when television came along. To answer your question, we're into the digital era now. And the, the essential thing, and I... I don't mean to be preachy about this, but as citizens, as consumers of news, I think you should think about. Right now, as the television era fades and the Internet era begins to dominate, there's been a tremendous shrinking in two really important areas. One is first-class international reporting, what we used to call foreign news. The amount of quality foreign news reporting has shrunk I think dangerously low. The other is deep digging investigative reporting, uh, that the market for it, if you will, has shrunk. And here's the reason. Those are two of the most expensive forms of journalism, covering uh, international news and doing investigative reports. And because, one, because they're expensive, it takes a lot of money to do them, and two, uh, particularly the second investigative reporting, causes controversy. Uh, no one has come up with a new business model, if you will, that will on a sustained basis pay for, finance, the kind of international reporting and investigative reporting we had not long ago. So I think that's something to watch looking forward. How do we come up with a business model? Now, having said I'm an optimist, I think somebody will come up with that business model, but up to including now they haven't. And I do think you will continue to see declining audiences for television, you know, looking at the television set, increasing audiences for Internet use. Um, we have time for just a couple more because of our time. We're going to go to this corner over here. You, sir. I think what, uh, one of the most interesting things about the film Truth uh, was that for the people that are my age or older, the buzz around is that we all thought we knew that story. We, you just sort of thought you knew that era, you lived through it, and you heard the story. And it's, you watch the movie, and it's simply not true. So I think, uh, I don't know how I would feel to sort of have my career curtailed and sort of not have my story told, but thank God it's been told. But the thing um, I don't understand is how, how things keep getting, the story keeps getting co-opted. When you say they uh, couldn't, attack you on the facts, so they attacked on the process. Who are they? Because the they keeps getting the story, and they keep doing, like, okay, let's, That's let's, a fair question. let's get the emails. And That's a fair question. And the they to which I refer are those uh, people, the people in the White House, 
people in the Republican Party, but not confined to the Republican Party. There are plenty of people who found fault with us who were not in the Republican Party. Those who, who see themselves as invested politically, ideologically, or otherwise in a one political direction, you call it conservative if you want, or reactionary, or whatever, uh, and, and their corporate allies, those are the they, I hope that's grammatically correct, those are the they to which I refer. <laughs> that the same people, and you say, well, who are these people? These are people who were in the White House at the time the story broke, people who were, who were in positions of power in the, in the Congress at that time, uh, the people uh, who were, were in Viacom at that time and are still there, some in the upper reaches of CBS at the same time. Now, I want to make it clear, uh, because I think it needs to be emphasized for fairness, we made mistakes, and we need to be accountable for those mistakes. But, I emphasize again, hold us responsible for what we did that we shouldn't have done and what we didn't do that we should have done, but recognize that flawed as it was, we got to some basic truths. We got to some facts. And the they that I referred to is that whomever, wherever, found those facts, found that truth inconvenient to say the least or harmful to their interests, political or otherwise, they are the ones who attacked us and, as a matter of fact, are in the process of undercutting the movie to this day as much as they can possibly do. I have no illusions about the film, truth. Uh, for one thing, this film has no dragons, no robots, and no sex. So, <laughs> I, There's a lot I, of drinking in this film, though, I must say. <laughs> uh, but my, you know, my hope is uh, that it will broaden a new conversation. However one feels about what we did or didn't do, however one feels about me or CBS News or my team of people, whatever, I hope it'll, it'll spark a, a new and broader discussion about the importance of a, of a free and independent, fiercely independent when necessary press as part of the red beating heart of democracy and freedom. I have a question for you. You sued CBS and, were, and went on a long uh, 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 campaign there on that litigation, which if I read the facts correctly, you spent a lot of money, invested a lot of money in that. <clears throat> Similarly, did you ever think about getting private investigators and people to find out, to answer your questions of what happened? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, one, when in the middle of the, the maelstrom that uh, developed in the wake of our story, uh, when the president of CBS News, uh, I think under direction of the people on the corporate side, said, stop looking at the story. In other words, we were continuing to investigate the story, saying, well, these people are asking questions. We're going to find out. We're going to find out more. He said, cease and desist. We're no longer going to work on this story. Cut it off. Now, at that point, I said to the president of CBS News, a man named Andrew Hayward, uh, well, if you're not going to do it, then I'm going to take money out of my own pocket and look into investigation. Uh, he said, well, Dan, you know, don't do that. I'm not, I've forgotten what he said, but he said, don't do that. Then he came to me and said, well, look, the corporation is going to hire some outside investigators to look into this case. And they did that for a little while. It didn't turn out very much, turned up very much, no surprise, and they cut it off. Because that's while I was still at CBS News. Now, after I left CBS News and formed my own production company called News and Guts, and, you know, a, a year later, more than a year later, the following thing dawned on me, and I'm sorry to be so lengthy here, and I apologize in advance, but it may be important to understand. I didn't want to sue CBS. I had moved on. I said, okay, I would rather have gone out on the Watergate story or, or the Kennedy assassination or the civil rights, but this is the way life works. But CBS, and I was slow. I can be dumb as a fence post about a lot of things, and I was dumb about this. But they had begun to erase me from their history, which is to say, a little like the Russians used to do when they had a change of, in the party apparatus, 
they would brush, brush people out of photographs, that it was as if I had never been there. Now, whatever mistakes I made and haven't said, I made plenty, and whatever imperfections I have, you know, you are what your record is. And I had a record at CBS, and I was rightly or wrongly proud of that record and still am. And to, when I realized that they were trying to erase me out of that record, no reference any time. They do something on the Kennedy assassination, and it's as if I wasn't there. At that point, I said, Dan, you're in a classic, classic fight-or-flight situation. You either have to fight them, or you're going you're gonna to just disappear. Now, I lost the lawsuit. They won. They won on appeal. They didn't win on the facts of the case. We wanted to take the case to jury. An appeals court, we lost the case. But some things are worth fighting for, even if you lose. And I was told going into the lawsuit, Dan, you can't take on a power like Viacom and CBS. Uh, yes, you've made fairly good money over your time, but these people have deep pockets, and besides that, theirs is tax deductible, yours is not. <laughs> but I did say to myself, no, you know, I see myself as a fighter when I have to be, and I'd rather go down fighting than just quietly sort of slink off and have them erase the whole record while I was there. This is Alec Baldwin. This conversation was recorded at the Hamptons International Film Festival. You're listening to Here's the Thing. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.